The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's Word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate, study God's Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, who helps us to understand the Word, store the Word in our souls, and to recall it when it's time to apply it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege we have to gather together and study your word this evening to be challenged by the things that are in it as we focus on the unique spiritual life that you have provided for us in this church age, that everything was provided for us at the cross. There's no secondary experience. There's nothing we need later. The issue is, first of all, salvation, faith alone in Christ alone, and then learning all of the assets that you have given us and learning how to apply them that we might advance to spiritual maturity. We pray that we could understand these things tonight as we study your word under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, and we continue our study of the unique spiritual life, and we come into what appears to be a bit of a transition section in the first part of Romans, and it's also got some problematical areas of application that we're going to have to address this evening in a somewhat cursory manner. So I don't want to get bogged down too much in having to take a sidetrack on something that's really a secondary issue in the text. Remember in chapter 6, Paul lays down the issue of our sanctification that it is on the basis of what happens at the cross. Retroactive positional truth at the instant of salvation, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we are identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection And we are entered into union with Christ. The specifically Pauline term is in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. So we become new creatures. And with that comes new relationships. Because we are, we have been identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. The sin nature no longer reigns. So we can see that we are dead to sin. Now that does not mean that the sin nature does not continue. It doesn't mean that you can't be just as reversionistic and just as much of a pervert and a reprobate after salvation as you were before salvation. That is one of the greatest things, one of the truths that is so hard for many, many Christians to understand is just because you are a believer does not mean automatically that you are a better person. And yet that seems to be the idea in so many people's minds, and it's a sort of a naivety. I I know so many people will say, well, I need a mechanic, or I need a doctor, or I need somebody to come in and work on my house. Are they a Christian? Well, I would rather have somebody who is competent than somebody who is necessarily a Christian, because there are a lot of Christians that aren't competent, and they're in reversionism, and they may steal you blind, and they may be irresponsible. So the issue is not necessarily that a person is a believer. You want to know if they're an advancing, maturing believer who has integrity, not necessarily one who is in spiritual rebellion. Now, as Paul concludes that opening argument in the first 12 chapters, uh, I mean 12 verses of Romans 6, comes down to verse 12 and he draws his conclusion. Therefore, do not let sin reign. Because the power of sin is broken and we are dead to sin... Sin is no longer a master. This is one of the most important things for us to understand. Before we are saved, we have a sin nature. We diagram it like this. The sin nature 
has an area of weakness that produces personal sins. These are overt sins, mental attitude sins, and sins of the tongue. That is usually what people associate with the sin nature, is the, the evils of immorality, lying, adultery, usually overt sins. Sometimes they'll focus on mental attitude sins like arrogance and pride. But we look at the bad things that are produced by the sin nature. But the sin nature also has an area of strength that produces human good. These are all the good things the unbeliever can do. The unbelievers are capable of a certain level of integrity and a certain level of morality and a certain level of virtue. And this is produced from the sin nature because there is no regeneration there. They don't have a human spirit, neither are they indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It is impossible for the unbeliever to produce anything that has any approbation with God. They cannot produce divine good. It's impossible. Therefore, all they can do is follow the dictates of the sin nature. But the believer has that power broken, and the issue for the believer is positive volition towards the Word of God or negative volition towards the Word and operating on the sin nature. So the believer has a level of freedom in his volitional choices that the unbeliever does not have at all. That's why Paul says that we are to think, we are to reckon, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin in verse 11. Now, and he, as he draws the conclusion in 12 through 14 of chapter 6, he lays down the principle in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, he stops there and he goes back to give a parallel illustration of our freedom from sin from verses 15 to 23. And we covered that last time, where instead of talking about and emphasizing retroactive positional truth, he builds on it from a different perspective that just as someone, uh, whoever you obey, you are a slave to whom you obey, prior to salvation, all you can do is obey the sin nature, so prior to salvation we are a slave to sin. But he goes on to say, in verse 17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that category of teaching, which is the gospel, uh, which was explained to you, or taught you, a corrected translation, and you have been freed from sin, you are now slaves of righteousness. So this is the issue now for the believer. Positionally, he is no longer a slave to sin, but he is in Christ, he's a new creature, and positionally, we are slaves to righteousness. The problem is that we don't offer ourselves. It comes back to volition. We offer ourselves in negative volition to the Scriptures. We offer ourselves to the sin nature, to obey the sin nature, and we put ourselves right back under the tyranny of the sin nature. And the result of that is carnal death, temporal death. It is self-destruction. Because when you operate on the sin nature, the result is always death. And that's why he ends with the statement in verse 23, often used for salvation, it can be applied that way, but in terms of strict interpretation and context, we stop talking about justification back in chapter 5, and we're in sanctification here. And the wages of sin is that which you uh, earn for your personal sin as a believer. The wages of sin is death, that is carnal death, self-destruction, but the free gift of God is eternal life, and we saw that that's not just everlasting life, life without end. You already have that as a believer, but it is a quality of life. Remember, Jesus said, I came to give life. Category one, life is eternal without end, and I not just life, but abundant life. That's the category ionos, which is normally translated eternal, has to do not only with length of time, but quality, depth, the quality of life. Now, he shifts gears in 7.1. We go back to the theme introduced in four, verse 14. There he said, you are not under law as a believer. We are no longer under law, but under grace. Now, this does not mean that believers did not, not operate on a grace principle, or God did not operate on a grace principle in the Old Testament. God has always operated on the basis of grace. The very fact that any human being who is a sinner violating the integrity of God is still alive, Walking around is grace. It is just that the principle for sanctification in the Old Testament was expressed in terms of 
the Mosaic law. And now what Paul is saying is that you're no longer under law, but you are under grace. Don't have time to go back through it. Well, let's just hold our place here quickly. I want to see, show you a parallel. Paul always juxtaposes these, and we saw it in our study in Galatians. And this is comparable to what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 2. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So the juxtap- he juxtaposes the Holy Spirit's ministry in the church-age believer's life at salvation, verse 2 is dealing with salvation, to the law. Either or, it's not both. It can't be a little of one and a little of the other. He always juxtaposes the two. They are antagonistic to one. And then he says in verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that is a regeneration, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, did you receive, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So here he is going to draw an analogy that the flesh operates on, the most, on law, on morality, as a means to try to gain the approbation of God. And while the modus operandi for the spiritual life in the Old Testament it was different, in the New Testament it's based on grace, and it is based on the Holy Spirit. Now, this foreshadows where his argument is headed in Romans chapter 7. He's saying we're not under law, but we are under grace. And by the time we get down to verse 6, we're going to see the introduction of the Holy Spirit is significant for the spiritual life. So 15 through 23 is really an aside. He gets down to verse 14 and he makes the statement, you're not under law but under grace. And then he decides, well, wait a minute. I don't think they really got the point. It's time for a little repetition. So I'm going to state the same point again in a slightly different analogy. And then we'll come back to discuss law. Now, someone might easily say that, that, that well, does that make law? If, law is ju- if the law is juxtaposed to grace, does that somehow make the law evil? So that is the point of verses 1 through 6, is to explain the fact that the law is still good. It is not evil. It is just used to an evil end by religious people. If we were to outline these first six verses, verse 1 lays down the principle. The principle is that that law only has jurisdiction over a person until death. Once a person dies, they are not under law. Simple, general principle that anyone can understand. Then in verses 2 and 3, he gives an example for marriage, an illustration. This is not an analogy. It's not an allegory. Uh, It's simply one illustration. It's not even an extended discourse on divorce and remarriage. Some people want to take it that way, but too much is left out and too little is said. It's just a very restricted illustration of his point. Then in verse 4, he draws a conclusion from the illustration. And then in verses 5 and 6, he makes the point in terms of its application to the believer's spiritual life. So let's start off. We should make make our way through most of this this evening. Let's start off by looking at the principle in verse 1. He begins by saying, Do you not know... Brethren, which indicates he's clearly talking to believers here, so we're not talking about issues related to unbelievers versus believers. Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Now, he starts off by asking a question. The question is based on the verb, a-a-noeo, which is from the... Verb, it's a combination of the negative alpha plus uh, verb for knowledge, and it indicates ignorance. Are you ignorant? This alpha privative, let me see, this would be A-G-N-O-E-O. 
this alpha primitive negates it, so it's ignorance. Standard formula that Paul uses to raise a point. It's interesting. He, he uses this kind of a question to, to bring the point that he's making to, to, uh, to emphasize the point that, he's, that he is making. He used this back in uh, Romans 6.3 when he said, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized? He uses it frequently in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, he uses it in verse 1, 9, 16, and 19. And the reason he does it is to focus the reader's attention on a principle that he assumes everyone understands and believes. It's a common point of understanding, something that everybody understands. It's a, it's a point of common ground. And then once he establishes that point of common ground, that we all agree that this, this principle is actual, then we will develop our application from that. And so the principle is just a rather general statement about law. It is introduced here with a hati clause. The Greek word hati is used uh, in place. Uh, it's used in a variety of different ways. Sometimes it is simply translated because as a causal sense. But in other places it's used to indicate a direct discourse. In other words, in English we would put he says, comma, quote. In Greek you say he says hati and then you have the, the quote. So it introduces a direct quote, or it could be a, uh, an indirect quotation as well. If we might say, well, the other day I heard somebody say that, and then we just paraphrase what they said. It's an indirect quotation. Hati is used that way. It would be something here, sometimes it's used to introduce a principle. So it would be something like this. Or, Do you not know brethren? Colon. And then you're going to have the principle given after that. We've seen this and studied this before in 6.3 and again in uh, 6.16. There he, in 6.16 he used a different phraseology. A little brown out there. A little different phraseology. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, the word law here is a standard word for, word for law, namas, N-O-M-O-S, but it doesn't have a definite article. Now, in Greek, the definite article has many different functions. The lack of it does too, and it doesn't always indicate definiteness. In fact, it's really a misnomer to call it the definite article. It's just the article. And namas, without the article, or any noun without the article, usually emphasizes the quality of the noun, the quality of the noun. So when Paul says this, this is a hint that he's probably talking about the Mosaic law, which is the only law handed down, specifically given by God to man. Now, there are three options. Some people suggest that this, is a, um, this indicates just law in general. Other people suggest that he's talking about Roman law, since he's talking to a congregation that is made up of Jews and Gentiles, and they're in the city of Rome, the seat of the Roman Empire, that he would be referring to something in the, in the Roman law. And then the third option is to discover whether or not he could be just speaking of the Mosaic law per se. I think that it's because of the illustration, because of certain words that are used in the illustration, because um, of the context talking about the law back in chapter 6. I think that he is, and what he's going to say further in the chapter that it must be understood as the Mosaic Law. So he is talking to the congregation. He understands they've been taught. They know some doctrine. Even the Gentiles in the congregation are familiar with the Old Testament. Remember, at this time, that's all they had was the Old Testament Scripture. So they would be, that was what they studied when they were in Bible class. They didn't have a New Testament Scriptures yet. They might have had, uh, perhaps, one letter. Uh, at this time, they probably didn't even have a gospel. Uh, available to them, so that that all they had was the Old Testament and then whatever prophecies they had in terms of the spiritual gift of prophecy, which was still operational at that time. So do you not know, brethren, I'm speaking to those who know the law. He assumes that there's a common understanding here of the Mosaic Law, and he says the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. In other words, when a person dies, they're no longer under the law. Once you die, you don't have to worry about getting arrested and thrown in jail. You don't have to worry about uh, IRS coming to uh, pound on your door to collect taxes. 
your, your heirs might, but you don't. And uh, the law it no longer applies. Now, he's going to build an illustration to make sure we understand the principle in verses 2 and 3, and it's taken from marriage and divorce. Verse 2, he says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, this is an interesting illustration, but we have to take a little time to understand it. It's simply an illustration. He's not giving an extended discourse here on the doctrine of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He's simply using part of it as an illustration. Now, let's look at verse 2. He says, for the married woman. Now, he uses a lot of unusual vocabulary here. For, for marriage, he uses a, a, a word that's only used one time in the New Testament. And it looks like this. It's a rough breathing mark. H-U-P-A-N-D-R-O-S. And it's a compound of hupa. Hupa, which means under, and aner, which is the word for a male or a man. And it has to do with being under the authority of a man. And it came to refer to, came to be another word for wife. The normal word is gune, for woman or wife. But here he uses the word hupandras, and he's focusing on the idea of subordination and submission to authority here, and that's because he's dealing with this from a legal perspective. The writers of Scripture do not choose words haphazardly. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband. Now here we have the word that he normally uses is the perfect active indicative of deo. D-E-O, which means to be bound. It's a normal word he uses when he's talking about marriage. It's, he doesn't use the word doulos, which he does use later on in this passage, uh, down in verse 4, for, for slavery, but it's not in this passage. And so it indicates just the marriage bond. That's all this is talking about. The, the married woman is bound by law because she has entered into a contract, a legal contract or covenant, with the man... And for as long as they live, that's why you say, till death do you part, uh, they are bound by law in, in marriage. The perfect passive indicative is, is interesting here because the perfect tense is an intensive perfect emphasizing the present reality from a past action. That's always the emphasis of the perfect. It's past completed action, but it's always an emphasis in some sense on a current reality. Sometimes it emphasizes the past action more, sometimes the current reality more. When it's emphasizing the present reality more, it is an intensive perfect. And this is an intensive perfect emphasizing that she, she is in a present state of marriage because of a past commitment to make a... Uh, to, to enter into a covenant or contract with the husband. So as long as the husband is alive, she is bound by that law. But, contrast, if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. Now, that's the whole point here. He's going to build an analogy off of this, and his point is, back in verse 1, is we are under law, but when death occurs, the bondage to the law, servant to the law, is broken. Get that point. That's all he's talking about here, is that death severs the subservient relationship, the authority relationship to the law. Now, he then goes on to say, the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, there's a third class condition, maybe he will, maybe he won't, it's purely potential, if her husband dies, she is released from the law. Now, this is not the term that is normally used for divorce, which is luo. This is the word katargeo. Katargeo 
incidentally, is the same word used over in First Thessalonians, uh, First Corinthians thirteen, uh, eight, six, seven, and eight. K A. Let's spell it out for you. K A T A R G E O where it talks about we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, that which is partial will be abolished. It has to do with that which is abolished, that which is nullified, that which is rendered null and void and ineffectual. So she is, her, her obedience to the law, therefore, is now nullified concerning the law of the husband. And this is another important phrase here because it indicates something from the Old Testament in the Greek, it looks like this. Tu namu, T-O-U, N-O-M-O-U. The O-U is a genitival ending. The law of the husband, tu andros, T-O-U-A-N-D-R-O-S. The law of the husband. And this is taken to be similar as a typically Jewish way of expressing it. For in Leviticus 14.2, you had all the regulations regarding the leper, and that section was called the Law of the Leper. And then there's another section uh, in Numbers 6.13, which describes the regulations of the Nazarite, and that was called the Law of the Nazarite. So by referring to the Law of the Husband, this would then refer to a passage like uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 24, which describes certain regulations regarding divorce and remarriage. And this would be called the law of the husband. So this indicates that the law he's talking about is not a general law, but he's using terminology that is directly related to the Mosaic law. Now, verse 3, he draws another conclusion. He says, So then, if while her husband is living, if he dies, she's free from the law. If while her husband is living, she's joined to another man... She shall be called an adulteress. Now, if you look at that in the English, it looks like, well, that could mean a number of things. It possibly, it could mean marriage, but it looks more like well, all it means is, is that she goes out and she lives with some other man and, and uh, there's no divorce involved. But that's, that's not what it says. It, it says in the Greek. In the Greek, you have the phrase, the verb genomai, You have the um, the aorist, the aorist active um, infinitive of getamai plus on air, which means to to really it's a, just an idiom to to be married. It's not used anywhere else in the uh, plus on air. It's not used anywhere else in the uh, New Testament, but it is used in several places in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament. For example, in Numbers 36.11 and Deuteronomy 24.2, which we will look at briefly in a few minutes. There it, is, it talks about taking a husband. That's how it's translated. It's based on a Hebrew idiom. And so it must be understood as marriage. So then while her husband is living, she marries another. And the assumption here is that a divorce takes place for an illegitimate reason and she marries another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, there are a lot of folks that look at this and think that Paul is really giving us a discourse on marriage and divorce, and that they will build their entire concept of, of divorce and remarriage on Romans 7.3. But you have to look at the entirety of the Scriptures, what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, what Paul teaches in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, as well as uh, what he says here in Romans 7, in order to get the full picture. And we also have to go back and look at some Old Testament concepts. So Paul is simply taking a snapshot of one particular type of scenario that can take place in marriage, that if uh, you have the husband joined to the wife, and he's saying if the husband dies then the wife becomes free. Now, he's going to build an analogy on this, but it's kind of backwards because we would think that, that the law is analogous or, or comparable to the, to the husband and that the Christian is comparable to the wife. That's why it's not an analogy because they don't fit. It's simply an illustration. 
And the illustration simply states that when you die, the law is no longer in effect. Just as when the death of a spouse occurs, the surviving spouse is no longer, the law no longer applies. That's all he's saying. If you try to build anything more into that, you've missed the whole point of the passage. Now, since I haven't really spent any time on this particular subject and I feel the need to uh, uh, go over it however briefly it is tonight, I want to just briefly speed our way through what the Scripture says about the doctrine of divorce and just outline a few things so we don't just leave it hanging with questions drifting through the air. First point, marriage is a divine institution. Marriage is a divine institution which was established in the Garden of Eden and therefore it applies to believer and unbeliever alike. That is the divine institution of marriage. When you get into the New Testament, it changes for the Christian and you have the establishment of a Christian institution of marriage, which means the standards and the principles that are outlined for the believer are a step higher than they are for the unbeliever. Nevertheless, we must remember that because marriage is designed for believer and unbeliever alike, the basic regulations that apply to marriage, which would include divorce because that's the negative side of marriage, also apply to believer and unbeliever alike. I'm always amazed at how many people come along and say, well, you know, if you were divorced and remarried when you were an unbeliever, it has no consequences after, if, if you know, once you're saved. Anyone with... Half a brain, I think, realizes that, and if any of you have been in that situation, you know that, that you're still stuck with the problems, that the residual problems of the divorce, whether it's your fault, somebody else's fault, nobody's fault, whatever it might be, those consequences still hang out through time. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that, that those consequences are any different. Now, you're forgiven, all your sins are paid for, and there's grace, and we'll deal with that in a minute. But the laws of marriage apply to believer and unbeliever alike. Christian marriage applies only to believer. Now, one of the things that we have to deal with is just sort of an aside, is that not only does the Bible outline the basic principles of marriage, but so does the national institution, divine institution number five, which is the division of the nations. That's a result of, um, of the Tower of Babel. For those of you who are unfamiliar with my five divine institutions, the first is human responsibility, Second is marriage. Third is family. Fourth is human government, which took place with the uh, Noahic covenant after the flood. And then the fifth is the division of nations. That doesn't occur until the breakup of languages at the Tower of, of Babel some uh, 250, 300 years after the uh, Noahic covenant. So those are really distinct. Now, in American law, one of the interesting... There's so many complicated things to bring in on divorce, and I think that so many people have superficial views. They just jump quickly to certain conditions without thinking everything through. And, of course, God hates divorce. The reason He hates divorce is because it's a violation of a contract. It's an expression of unfaithfulness. And God hates divorce and because of all the consequences of it. But that doesn't mean that there aren't legitimate reasons for divorce and even fewer legitimate reasons for remarriage. We have to realize that we have to live in a society where there is a lot of legal issues involved. For example, in some states, you, have the, uh, you can have a marriage breakdown, and perhaps the two people do not want to have a divorce, but because it's a state where common law is in effect, um, if one incurs debt, the, it's the debt of the other one. And so... If there's no such thing as legal or economic uh, separation, in order for one to protect themselves from the other person, they have to get a divorce, and I recognize that as, as valid just for self-protection. There's a lot of issues like that that are uh, all superficially ignored. So you have, uh, while you can in some states have a judicial separation, in other states that's just merely a, um, a legal fiction. So you have to deal also with the law of the land. But we start as believers always with the Bible. So point one is simply that marriage is a divine institution and God has given regulations for the success of marriage as well as for what happens when marriage breaks down. Point number two, the Bible limits the number of reasons for ending a marriage and these are uh, 
as well as a few reasons that permit remarriage. Divorce, we will see from Deuteronomy 24, was clearly permitted under the Mosaic Law. Uh, remarriage was permitted under the Mosaic Law. We see that marriage is dissolved through the death of a spouse. Marriage is legitimately or can be, it's not necessary, but adultery can be a legitimate basis for divorce as well as uh, provide a legitimate basis for remarriage by the innocent party. The guilty party, if the guilty party remarries, then that becomes adultery. Desertion is also a legitimate basis for divorce and remarriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So when desertion occurs, then divorce and remarriage are legitimate. And then another category I put in is divorce manipulation. Just, you know, a lot of times you can run into a situation where one spouse or the other tries to manipulate the other person into a position where eventually that person is the one who goes down and files for divorce when it's the other person who's pushed everything and manipulated and tricked so that it doesn't look like they're the guilty party. So God, at that, that point, you have to rely upon the Supreme Court of Heaven. And sometimes if you're the victim of that, I think that incurs the right to remarriage as well. And we'll see that in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Point number three. In American law, all divorce carries with it the right to remarriage, but just because American law gives you the right to remarry does not mean the Scripture gives you the right to remarry. If you're an innocent victim in an adultery case, in a desertion case, or in a manipulation case, then you have the right to remarriage, but the guilty person does not have the right to remarry. And then point number four, the scripture is silent on many other reasons that I think are legitimate reasons for divorce. The scripture does not address situations such as brutality, child abuse, wife abuse, drunkenness, sexual abuse, drug addiction, sexual molestation, insanity, criminality, suicidal tendencies, and a variety of other situations that make it impossible for two people to live together just on a practical level. I think in those cases there's a legitimate basis for divorce, but there is not the right to remarry in those situations. So point number five, legitimate biblical divorce then becomes analogous to the death of one partner in the marriage. That's what Paul is developing here, just as when there is a legitimate divorce, it is as if the one partner has died and that gives the surviving person the right to remarriage. And then point number six, one I always like to remind people of, divorce is not a problem-solving device. Marriage is not a problem-solving device. Too many people try to get, uh, you know, they get divorced because they're not happy. Well, the purpose of marriage is not happiness, which we'll see in a minute. Uh, The purpose of marriage is to glorify God. Divorce is not a solution to your loneliness. Divorce is not a solution to the problems in your life. In fact, especially if you have children, divorce can just become a a further way to increase the misery of your life because the mother or father of your children will always be the mother and father of your children. They will be there when your children get married. They will be there when your grandchildren get married. And when you have children and you get divorced, you only alleviate perhaps some of the immediate problematical symptoms. The issue is that you need to, whenever possible, stay in the marriage because often divorce just complicates things and it is just is another way of going through advanced testing and misery. Now, a few grace principles to remember when dealing with divorce. First of all, any sin or failure regarding marriage or divorce is always dealt with by grace. That means that if that has taken place in your life, whether you were the guilty party or the innocent party, but if you're a guilty party, and that in, then that sin is paid for at the cross, and there is uh, forgiveness, and you can move forward beyond whatever failure that is. There are many different ways in which we fail in life, and divorce is not a special category of sin that brands us as somehow worse than everybody else. In our self-righteous churches today, that is often the case. I have a good friend of mine who is from another country and has been in the United States for about 25 years, a very successful businessman, and he can't wait to leave the country now because it's not the country 
it was 25 years ago. We were talking on the phone the other day, and he said this country has become so self-righteous regarding so many personal freedoms that I would rather live in a number of other countries where you have real personal freedom that Americans don't have because we're trying to legislate away everybody's or legislate everybody into health and happiness and all kinds of categories rather than give people the freedom. If you want to drink yourself to death, go drink yourself to death, but that's your volition. If you want to smoke and get cancer, smoke and get cancer, but that's your decision. So we want to legislate and stop everybody from making bad decisions, and that just flows out of the self-righteousness left over from the uh, religious movements of the 19th century. So we have to realize that any sinner failure, including divorce, is taken care of by Christ on the cross. If you are now, point number two, if you are now divorced and you're remarried and perhaps you were the guilty party, it's too late to resolve the problem. You just confess your sin and move on. You don't divorce your current wife, whether she's number two, number three, number four, or number five. You just you know, realize what the biblical principles are for marriage now. Start where you are now and start applying them and go forward in grace. Remember, there is always forgiveness at the cross. Two wrongs don't make a right, so you can't correct things by doing another thing that is wrong. Point number three, the solution. If you are living in an adulterous marriage now, and by that I mean a marriage that is illegitimate because your divorce was for illegitimate reasons, then the starting point is simply to confess your sins, realize there is forgiveness, don't get caught up in a guilt trip, It's all over with, it's past, forget it, and look forward to the future. If you're still alive, then God still has a plan and a purpose for your life, and that's going to be based on His grace, just as it is in in everything else. Now, some general principles for marriage. First of all, people are no better in marriage than they are as singles, because people are people. They're going to fail, some are failures, some are successful, because of who they are. If you're going to be a success in marriage, it's because you're a success as an individual. If you're going to be a failure in marriage, it's because you are a failure as an individual. So people are no better in marriage than they are as people. Secondly, people who are failures in the spiritual life as a single person are going to be failures in the spiritual life in marriage. And most marriage failures boil down to spiritual failures on one side or the other. Point number three, people who are successful when they are single are also going to be successful in marriage because success is determined by your spiritual life and your relationship to God and it is not determined by any other factor ultimately. Point number four, it takes two successful people in the spiritual life to make a successful marriage because each person then takes personal responsibility for their own decisions and they understand they understand principles of confession of sin so that they can deal with the sin in their life and they can move forward. But just as it takes two successful people to have a successful marriage, it only takes one failure to destroy a marriage. No matter how much one person wants that marriage to succeed, the other person doesn't care. It doesn't matter how much the other person wants it to succeed. Point number five, a good marriage is not designed for happiness. God did not design marriage for happiness. He, he created Eve to be Adam's helper, Etzer, in the garden, his helpmate, his assistant, in order that the two of them in, in marriage could then fulfill the divine mandate God gave the human race on the planet. And that is to ultimately to glorify him in the angelic conflict. That's why when you come into the New Testament and the new mandates that God gives in Ephesians 5 for, for Christian marriage, they really show how the curse the curse of the man's desire to dominate and be a tyrant in the marriage and the woman's desire to usurp authority in the marriage in Genesis 3:15 and 16, that that can be rolled back only under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit and advancing to spiritual maturity. So the purpose for marriage is not personal happiness. The purpose for marriage is to glorify God. And if both the husband and the wife have as their primary goal the glorification of God and they are advancing spiritually then the byproduct of that is going to be a wonderful union and tremendous happiness. But because the happiness is the result of their spiritual life, not the result of their cohabitation. So happiness is the byproduct of the spiritual life. It's not the purpose for marriage. And then finally, um, 
marriage should before you get married you should take a take a look at how compatible you really are. Now I'm amazed when I used to do a lot of premarital counseling, I kind of got tired of that because nobody ever listened to me. I was amazed at how many people didn't ever seriously sit down and see how compatible they are. I think that that first of all there there has to be a spiritual compatibility. If you have one person who is not a believer and the other person a believer, that's clearly forbidden in scripture. And I am amazed at how many people marry unbelievers because their, their glands are stirred and they just can't control themselves, I guess, and how few parents drill it into their kids that they should not have any close, intimate friends that are not believers. You know, the solution to that is you teach them to evangelize all their friends. But the Scripture says, how can we be unequally yoked, a believer with an unbeliever? And the problem is that we get out there and we, we go the dating process, the purpose of dating ultimately is to find a spouse, to go through that weeding out process, to go through a procedure where you go out and you learn what kind of people you like and dislike and what, how to build those relationships. And the ultimate goal of dating eventually is to find that person that you're compatible with and that you're going to spend your life together with. And if you spend your time dating anything that comes along, then you're, you're, you've got a blueprint for disaster right there. So you have to have spiritual compatibility. It starts with being a believer, and it, it goes on to being a positive to doctrine. There is no basis in the Scriptures for evangelistic dating. Not the purpose of dating is to go out there and, and, and try to get people saved in the process. Now, you can always witness to people you have a social... Uh, encounter with, but that doesn't mean that that's the purpose of dating. You can get yourself in serious trouble. There should be physical compatibility in the sense that, that you find the other person attractive. You know, it's hard to, to love and care for somebody that, that you find very unattractive. There should also be an economic compatibility. That means before you get married, you should sit down and you should make out a budget. Figure out how you're going to pay the bills, how you're going to, what your philosophy of saving money is, what your philosophy of investing is, who's going to control the purse strings. All of those things, most people never think about that until the credit card bills come and they're up to their eyeballs in debt and then they don't know what happened. Uh, so that you have to have a budget and decide how much money you make and what your, what your uh, priorities are going to be and what your, your principles of, of money management are. And then there ought to be a level of family compatibility. Remember, look at who your future in-laws are because they're going to be with you for the next 30 or 40 years and you never know what may happen where they may actually be living with you for the last 10 or 15 years of, the, of your life. And so you have to look at those things as well. All of these things are, are crucial if you are going to get married. You better make sure that there is a certain level of spiritual compatibility, physical compatibility, economic compatibility, and soul compatibility. Now, let's look at a couple of passages briefly before we wrap up. Just turn to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, and we'll see just part of the uh, Old Testament regulations re related to uh, marriage and divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Verse 1 says, when a man takes a wife, literally it should be if a man takes a wife, because it's a case law. If a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes. Now, that's really a pathetic translation. It's, it's a, a deed of, of nakedness, which is a Hebrew idiom for a matter of shame. It's not just a matter of, of, um, of adultery, because adultery was punishable by death. So if, if what this is talking about is, uh, is adultery, then that's not an issue because you take them to criminal court and they're stoned and, and then you don't have to worry about divorce. You just go get another wife because the death has ended the marriage. So this is obviously talking about something beyond adultery. If it happens that she finds no favor, there's shame in your eyes because there's some... It doesn't identify what it might be. It's the husband just discovers something in her that that he doesn't like. There's some level of incompatibility because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. See, this is, this is tantamount to the manipulation scheme that I talked about earlier. He just, it's, it's not necessarily a legitimate reason for divorce. He just finds something about her that he doesn't like. 
Now, the rabbis tried to figure out what this was, and there were a couple of different rabbinical schools. The more liberal school was the school of Hillel. And they decided that any, um, that, that, uh, this indecency could be just about anything, and they said that, that it could be, um, if the, she caused her husband to eat food that had not been properly, properly dedicated to the Lord or tithed to the temple. If, uh, she failed to keep a temple vow, if she burned the toast, if she walked in public with her hair loose, the Jews always kept the hair up, so if she kept if she walked with her hair loose, that was a sign of shame. If the woman was talking to a man in public, they thought that was flirting, that was shameful, so that would be a cause for divorce. Uh, if she was noisy, if she was an excessive gossip, then, then he could divorce, divorce her because she talked too much. And if uh, he just found a woman that was more attractive, then he could do it. That was the liberal view of divorce among the, the rabbis, so... You know, ladies should be careful not to marry a man who follows the school of Philaeal because they really have to walk a tightrope. Now, this is the case of the husband. He finds some fault in the wife and he sends her out, gives her a bill of divorcement. So it's recognized that she's no longer his husband. That's important. The Old Testament recognizing this certificate of divorce ends the marriage. It's not like some people say that, well, you're married for life, and so even though you get a legal divorce, in the eyes of God, you're still divorced. God recognizes the ending of the marriage on the basis of this divorce. And she leaves this house, goes and becomes another man's wife. So she gets remarried. That's viewed as legitimate here. There's no condemnation of that. And her second husband also turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce. Certificate of divorce puts her puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies. See, there's an illegitimate reason, first of all, and then there's a legitimate reason. She gets remarried and her husband dies. Then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. See, that's the legislation in verse 4. He's not allowed to take the first wife back if she's been married in the in-between stage. Now, if it's wrong to remarry at all, it would say that. The only thing forbidden here is remarriage of a spouse when there has been an intervening marriage uh, that, has, uh, taking, that has taken place on the part of the spouse. So that's the key principle. And those of you who are thinking about getting married, a good principle is in verse 5, just as an aside, when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. In other words... That you need, men, when you get, first get married, you need to do away with every other distraction in life. Give up all your hobbies, everything else, and just devote that first year to your marriage. That's the principle there. Now, Deuteronomy 24 clearly recognizes the reality of divorce, as does, um, as does Matthew 24, that it is, uh, adultery is the exception there. And then one other passage I want to direct your attention to before we wrap this up is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul establishes the fact that, that it is legitimate to, to have a divorce and remarriage on the, basis of, on the basis of desertion. Then when he gets down to verse 27, let's start with verse 26. He's summing up his discourse on marriage and being a Christian, the Christian institution of marriage. And he says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. In other words, we're living in a tough world, we're living in Satan's world, and, it's, and Paul's opinion is it's good for a man to remain as he is. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay single. That was Paul's opinion. Then he explains this starting in verse 7. He says, are you bound to a wife? That's the word deo again, and it indicates marriage. Are you married to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Luo, do not seek to be divorced. That's the mandate. If you're married, don't seek to be divorced because it is not a problem-solving device. Are you released from a wife? In other words, are you divorced from a wife? Then do not seek a wife. And that would be on the basis of an illegitimate divorce, probably. We have to assume that in light of the other passages. And then in verse 28, he says, But if you should marry, you have not sinned. Now, all of that should be taken together as one line. So that makes it real clear that remarriage in certain situations where there has been adultery, desertion, or somehow the husband or spouse has forced the uh, 
situation to uh, end in a divorce, or even in the case of the death of a spouse, it's very legitimate to uh, remarry. Now, in cases where divorce occurs without the right of remarriage, then the only thing that gives the right of remarriage is when the spouse divorces. And those kinds of situations are whenever divorce occurs because of abuse, life-threatening situation, brutality to children, criminality, something of that nature. Now, I realize that was a very uh, cursory look at the issue of divorce and remarriage, but um, that gives you just a summary, and at some later time we'll come back and deal with all the all the issues in detail. Let's go back to our passage in Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. Therefore, now he set it up, while her husband's alive, she's joined to another man. She's called an adulteress because she just leaves illegitimately and and gets a divorce and remarries, so that's adultery. The basic concept of adultery is unfaithfulness to a covenant, which is what's happened. She's made a contract, now she's broken it. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. That's the whole issue. When there's a death, there's freedom. Now, what he says in verse 4 is to explain what he means by this illustration. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. So, the Christian is made to die to the law, just as when the husband dies, the wife is set free. And that occurred through the body of Christ. At Christ's substitutionary death on the cross... Uh, Christ came as an end of the law, the Scripture says, and at that point, when our, with our identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, then that ends the law. So that, and that has a purpose, so that you might jo- be joined to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. So in the analogy, instead of really what has happened, instead of the law dying, you still have the law in effect, but the Christian is dead to the law. Because the Christian has died in Christ, the bondage to the law is broken, so that now the Christian is joined to a new master, Christ. We have a new marriage. The old one has ended because of the death of uh, our identification with Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, and we are identified with Him. Notice what it says. So that we might be joined to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, for the purpose, Hena clause there, that we might bear fruit to God. Now, this is crucial to understand. If you understand anything about agriculture, immature plants do not produce fruit. You have a seed that is germinated, and it sends forth a shoot. That's regeneration. And then you have a seedling, and you have the development of the stalk of the plant and the leaves. That is growth. That is not fruit. A leaf is not fruit. Development of the stem is not fruit. Fruit comes only when it reaches a certain level of growth, and a maturing, only a maturing plant produces fruit. So what Paul is saying, that we might bear fruit for God, you can't bear fruit for God unless you get to spiritual maturity. So the issue here is spiritual growth. Verse 5, for while we were in the flesh, this is the looking at the past, while we were in the flesh, that is sin nature, under the dominion of the, of the sin nature, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. That, that's what its production was was just carnal death, the same principle we saw back in verse 23. So the, the unbeliever, the law stimulates the unbeliever to sin. That doesn't mean its purpose is that way. It's just like when you drive down the highway. We've all had this experience, I think, and you see a sign, slow construction ahead. And we sit back in judgment of the sign and say, well, maybe I don't need to really slow down. You know, we want to be our own authority. We want to wait and see just how much is really going on before we decide to slow down. And so what happens is that as soon as somebody tells us to do something or not to do something, first thing we want to do is say, well, let me try. Let me see if it's really that bad. And so, so by, being, by encountering a prohibition, it just stimulates us to want to do what is prohibited. That's what Paul is saying here. But now, the strong contrast between verse 6 and verse 5, now, now that we are believers, we have been released from the law. That's the word luo. It's a divorce that's taken place. We are divorced from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. We were married to the law. So that, purpose clause, we serve in newness of spirit, of the spirit, the Holy Spirit, and not in oldness of the letter. So here he introduces the fact that the law is gone and now it's the Holy Spirit that's the issue 
in the Christian life. But we won't hear about the Spirit again until we get to chapter 8, because he is going to go on and explain what he means by the law and the dangers of legal obedience, starting in verse 7. And we will pick that up next Wednesday night. No, next Thursday night. Remember that. Next Wednesday night, I'll still be in Kansas City. Next Thursday night, we will have Bible class right here. Same time, same place. We will have that Thursday night and then the Thursday night after Memorial Day. Instead of the first, uh, instead of the 31st of May, which is Wednesday, we will have Bible class on the 1st of June. We'll have Bible, so that's two Thursday nights coming up. Next week, Thursday night. Thursday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. That's how it's going to go. See if you can remember that. Al will get it in the bulletin for you. That last, that last week, I was, this last week when I was down in Houston, I just realized I'd been wrestling. I really wasn't going to go down to the Washington, D.C. conference when Pastor Theme's down there. I've gone the last two years, and I've got to go to Houston to do a wedding the weekend before, and I'm just traveling way too much, and I wasn't going to go, but I thought, you know, this man is not going to be around that many more years, and he's been my pastor for 48 years. I just don't want to miss the few opportunities I have left to be with him. So I decided that this year, instead of coming back on Wednesday and having Wednesday night class as usual, I'm going to go there for the whole conference and come back on uh, Thursday, and we'll have class on on Thursday that week. Those times are very, uh, very important to me now. Let's uh, bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for your word and for the truth of your word and for the fact that it explains so clearly to us the differences that have taken place as a result of our salvation, that we are in fact free from the bondage and dominion and reigning of the sin nature, that that power has been broken and we no longer are forced to operate on the basis of the sin nature, but there's a new dynamic under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to live our unique spiritual life. We pray that we would be challenged by the things that we have studied tonight, that these, these truths would motivate us to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.